So as election day draws ever closer, we may find the legislature doing things that may not have been discussed in seventh grade civics class. Not necessarily governance, but gamesmanship, as they work the rules to head off a challenge from the grassroots. We'll explain. We'll also analyze Proposal 3, also known as Promote the Vote, one of the ballot initiatives voters will be asked to consider in November. I'm Nancy Derringer, and this is Facts Matter, the Citizens Research Council of Michigan podcast. Let's start this call with a few stipulations, okay? Legislation in Michigan usually comes out of the legislature. That's their job. Or it can come up from the grassroots via a direct democracy process here in Michigan we call the ballot initiative. Citizens come up with their own idea for laws or constitutional amendments and pass petitions among the population to gather support. At some point, the legislature may take notice of what's happening and decide we poor grassroots don't need to go through all that. They'll just take matters into their hands and adopt it themselves. And that's what happened here earlier this month. Researcher Jill Roof is here to explain new laws, raising the minimum wage, and requiring employers to give workers paid sick leave. Welcome, Jill. Hello. Thank you. Okay. So why don't you just brief us and I brief us on what these two pretty consequential new laws will do for uh, Michigan workers. Let's start with the minimum wage. Okay. Um, The petition to increase the minimum wage will raise it from, I think it's 890 right now, but by January of 2022, we'll raise minimum wage to $12 an hour. Um, After that point, starting in 2023, it will be adjusted for inflation unless the unemployment rate is at 8.5% or higher the year before. This uh, law will also raise the minimum wage for tipped workers like restaurant employees to 100% of the minimum wage by 2024. Right now they earn a lower minimum wage and then their tips are supposed to make up the difference. Okay. So this um, basically, um, you know, just to to put it another way, this gradually steps in a significantly higher minimum wage for Michigan workers, including tipped workers. Yes, yes. It will start in 2019 with $10 an hour, moving up to 12. Okay. All right. So that's minimum wage. Um, What about sick leave? The paid sick leave law will require employers in Michigan to provide one hour of paid sick time for every 30 hours worked. So um, employees will be allowed to use a maximum of 72 hours, which would be nine eight-hour days of paid sick time a year. Employee small businesses, so it, uh, which is defined as businesses with less than 10 employees, would only be required to provide their employees with 40 hours of paid sick time, but then they would also be required to provide 32 hours of unpaid sick time every year. And this sick time will um, carry over year to year, but employers will only be required to provide these capped amounts each year. 
Okay. So again, this is a very pro-worker piece of legislation. It um, acknowledges that um, workers, you know, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes can't make it in because of uh, illness and it compensates them for that. And this yeah. is um, believed by many to be not just a good thing for workers. I mean, we all appreciate, you know, a paid sick day so that we don't feel that we have to drag ourselves in to work on days when we might, you know, really need to stay in bed. But also it's, um, you know, this is something that's considered good for the rest of us because the last thing any of us want is somebody that we may come in contact with in the course of the day, um, you know, hacking and, mm -hmm. and bringing all kinds of, <laughs> all kinds of germs to the office, right? Yes, yes. Um, paid sick time laws are generally um, thought to improve public health and improve worker health. Um, but they do come with extra impacts on costs and productivity for businesses. Right, exactly. And that's probably why both of these bills were, or both of these initiatives, I should say, were generally opposed by um, various Michigan business organizations who yes. who saw it as an unnecessary increase in costs that, um, you know, business that should be handled by the marketplace, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yes, yes. The general thought was these were private employee-employer um, issues that the government should not get involved in from the business side. Okay, exactly. Well, I think that is a good outline of what these two bills are, and um, I thank you for that. Thank you. Okay. So that's the legislation. Now that Jill's explained it, let's turn to analyzing how this happened. Joining me is Eric Lufer, the Research Council President. Hello, everyone. Okay. So, Eric, would it violate our nonpartisan neutrality to point out that raising the minimum wage and requiring paid sick time was not universally supported by the state's business community and that that community tends to support Republicans in the legislature? No, I don't think that would violate that at all. Um, but in saying that, let's understand that this phenomenon, this practice that they used, um, political gamesmanship, if you will, has occurred for other issues. And always at other times, it has been Republicans using this as an opportunity to get something introduced in the Democratic Party in control, uh, adopting it lest it go to the voters and, and right. drive votes and, and making... Uh, the process more difficult down the line. Right. Games, gamesmanship, I think, is the key word here. This isn't, yes. this isn't necessarily about uh, enacting uh, a bill. It's, it's about almost keeping it from doing that. But let's get well, into that. Well, in but there's, there's another aspect to it. In this case, it's very clear that um, it's about keeping it off the ballot. The key point to know for the other aspect is that when the legislature adopts an initiated proposal, one that the petitions have been circulated, the board of canvassers has signed off. If they adopt it, it's not subject to gubernatorial approval or veto. So in the past, a proposal has been gone through the legislature, the governor's vetoed it, and whatever party would go back and say, well, fine, we're going to do this where the governor can't veto it. Those, you know, so grassroots, we're putting air quotes around that term, collect the signatures, <laughs> introduce it. The legislature says, well, of course, we'll adopt that. 
and now the governor is left on the sidelines looking in. There's no checks and balances as we see in other legislative processes. Okay. Well, let's not get too far ahead of the game here. Um, Explain exactly what happened here. We had a, quote-unquote, grassroots organization to pass these petitions to qualify this um, legislation for a citizen's vote in November. Um, however, there's in the Constitution, there is a end run they can do around that where they just can adopt it outright. Well, but what are yeah. the, what are so, the individual details? So I wouldn't details? classify it as an end run. Okay. We have in Michigan what's called the indirect initiative as it relates to statutory initiatives. Um, our constitutional initiative process is direct. People sign the signatures, Board of Canvassers signs off. It's directly on the ballot. For statutes, it's indirect, meaning the people sign the petitions, the Board of Canvassers signs off that those are sufficient in number. And then it goes to the legislature with the opportunity to uh, adopt that amendment and, and not have to send it in. It's sort of, hey, that's a great idea. I wish we thought of that. Let's do that. So it's not an end run. It's part of the process. It's, it's built in there. Uh, the, there's a couple differences, a couple reasons why you would want to go one way or another. The part of it is the gamesmanship. Do you want that appear on the ballot? Uh, who's, what kind of voters is that going to drive if people are paying attention to that? The other is what happens after the fact. The ability to amend an initiated statute, uh, if, if the legislature adopts it, as we saw this case, the ability to amend it is just like any other bill. You go back and you have to have 50% of the legislator plus one vote in both chambers of um, a simple of, majority. Of the legislature, a simple majority. Right. If the people adopt it, if they don't do anything in the legislature and it goes on the ballot and the people say, we love that idea, let's do that, now in order to go back and amend that initiated law, you have to have a three-quarter vote supermajority. Okay. And Or, again, put it to a vote, and, and that's very costly and time-consuming. Uh, so sort of the lesson, you know, why would you want to do it one way or another, what I've learned in 31 years of doing this is no legislation is perfect. They never get it right the first time. An initiated law is especially not perfect because you're not putting your ideas out to the public, not handing them to the opposition to see. And so you have a bunch of people all of a like mind saying, this is a great idea, let's do this, where somebody, even if they're given just constructive criticism, would say, do you really want it to do this? Are you sure you want to go this way? Or not? They're not thinking about unintended consequences. They're not thinking about, did we really say that in the best way possible? so that everyone will understand what we meant by it. So it is... And you can be left with a real mess then, or things that have to work their way through courts, and isn't this what happened with the casino ordinance? Well, or the, yeah, the, the casino cas- law, rather? The casino law, they had to go back and clean up. Um, this is you know part of doing business. Even if it were done the regular way, we probably would have had to go back and clean things up because you just don't know when something brand new like that 
we've had to do it with the mer- medical marijuana laws to try right. to clean those up and adjust the system. Um, and you know, sort of the epitome of this was a constitutional amendment that was introduced and it used the same section number as an existing section. So now we have a 36 and a 36A <laughs> because that's, the, you know, where where if you, you know, ask the Legislative Service Bureau or ask an outside set of eyes to look at it, they said, well, how many sections 36 do we need in, in, in this article? Uh, so there's benefit to doing that. They're not going through that um, because of the way we do things in Michigan. And it's worse for the wear. We're going to have to clean it up at some point. How hard do you want that process to be? Okay. But in this case in particular, I think it's pretty widely accepted that they have no, the legislature, the, the sitting legislature has no, uh, desire to tinker with this law. They basically want to gut it once it's been after in the lame duck session, correct? Either weaken it tremendously or gut it completely. Right. Yes. Okay. And can they do that? So that's the key question at this point. Uh, they're doing something they call adopt and amend, and and their ability to do that is in the Constitution in Article 2, Section 9, uh, it says any law proposed by initiative petition shall be either enacted or rejected by the legislature without change or amendment within 40 days from the time such a petition is received by the legislature. The key phrase there, re- uh, enacted or rejected by the legislature without change or amendment. So they have done that at this point. The question is, for how long of a period of time do they have to not change or amend it? Uh, Attorney General Frank Kelly, shortly after the adoption of our current constitution, created an opinion. You know, that's what attorney generals do. They create opinions and they publish those that said during that same session, the legislature has to keep hands off. This is one person's opinion. That's not court ruling. That's not legislation. Um, but that's sort of what's binding at this point, the attorney general's opinion. Um, there's, it's an open-ended question, I think, whether that is you know, really what's going to happen or if they come in and try to amend it, um, then what happens? This sounds like it's going to be a real Donnybrook because um, I believe that at least one party on the... Um, who who uh, favors this uh, legislation has already said if they try to do that, there's going to be hell to pay. There's going to be a lawsuit, certainly. Yeah, I think um, since it is unsettled law, that probably both sets of proponents of these uh, minimum wage and the earned sick time will rush to the courthouse to say, let's put the brakes on that. Let's not let that go through. The, the danger, sort of, again, going back to the political gamesmanship, is suppose they don't do anything for the balance of this session. Suppose um, they don't do anything before the election, they get into lame duck session, they can't garner the votes, or, or somebody puts the brakes on it, they don't do anything. And then what happens with the new legislature? Is it going to be still Republican majorities in both houses, 
or if there is you know sort of that blue wave does that create a democratic majority in either house and the ability to go in and gut these amend these becomes much weaker because now you'll have uh, supposedly the democratic party who is friendly to these uh, these issues and and wants to let them become law so there's sort of a, a clock running on how long they have the ability to do that. We don't know what's going to happen November 6th. Um, but if there is a blue wave, that lame duck session becomes very important. And and I think we'll see them try to do it during that time frame. <laughs> this is like 3D chess in a lot of ways, you know. <laughs> Or at least, yes. at least uh, 2D. But So the courts have not said anything about adoption amend yet. It's not been tried before. Okay. So they this has been a, a null question that's not come before them, and they wouldn't just issue an opinion. They have to have something to really rule on. Um, so this will be the first time that somebody's tried to adopt and in the same session amend. Okay. So we're in uncharted waters at this point. This is oh. true. Okay. This week also saw the release of the second of our three ballot issue analyses. Last week, we looked at Proposal 2, the redistricting amendment to the state constitution, and today we have a look at Issue 3, the petitions for which were passed by a group calling itself Promote the Vote. If it passes in November, it will put a number of voting rights not in state law, where they are now, but in the constitution. It includes some very uncontroversial elements, plus a few that are. Craig Thiel is here to take a look at what this would mean for the rest of us. So, Craig, can you run us through what Proposal 3 would do if it passes? Uh, If it were to pass, it would put in the state constitution a number of current voting-related laws effectively protecting them from legislative encroachment. Uh, A number of things that are currently in law, statutory law, would be put into the state constitution. As you mentioned, there's some new ones, some that are controversial, that aren't currently on the books, have been debated in the uh, legislative arena, but never put on the state books would be put in state law. And uh, we can go over those if you're interested. I'm, of course I'm interested, but let's start with the ones that are not particularly controversial. Um, I believe this um, amendment or this uh, initiative would um, enshrine the right to a secret ballot in the constitution, which seems kind of silly because that's the way we've done it. We've always done it in this country for the most part, at least in any of our lifetimes. Right. And that one's actually currently in the Constitution. It entrusts the legislature with uh, protecting the secret ballot. The nuance here is that it would give every citizen the, the direct right to a secret ballot. So a little nuanced, but um, that's one that currently appears in the Constitution. Um, but ones that uh, – rights that would be new to the Constitution that are currently in state law include uh, those individuals who are overseas, military members, uh, for example, their right to receive a ballot 45 days before 
the election. Uh, that's currently in our election law. The, the timeline there is set to ensure that they get the ballot in time to, to complete it and return it to the local clerk so they can be counted um, in an election. I guess um, uh, mail delivery from Afghanistan can be a little spotty sometimes. Can I be a little spotty, right. <laughs> okay. um, then uh, there is um, a provision in here uh, that's currently in state law having to do with requiring audits of statewide elections. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, changes to the uh, Michigan election law required the Secretary of State to develop a audit program, and that's currently taking place, um, and, uh, and that would be uh, a right that citizens would, new right citizens would have in their state constitution under this proposal. Okay. Um, but then we get to one that is perhaps, well, a couple actually, that are perhaps a little um, a little more, and I hate to use the word controversial, it's such a cliche, but it's, it's the kind of thing that we've been, these are issues that we've been fighting over for a while. Um, for instance, um, absent the the issue of absentee voting and how we how we vote absentee in Michigan right now. If you want to vote absentee just for your own convenience, you basically have to tell a white lie to your uh, to your local clerk. Correct. Well, uh, the election law requires you to present a reason why you were, are requesting an absentee ballot. And they can range from anywhere from your inability to get to the polling place to in uh, difficulty uh, reviewing a ballot uh, to, frankly, just being out of town uh, on election day. Um, this proposal would uh, grant to uh, Michigan voters the opportunity to vote absentee without a reason, without providing the state or local jurisdiction a, a reason why you want to vote absentee. And across the, uh, the country, uh, Michigan is one of just a handful of states, about 20, that require a, a reason to vote absentee. Most states are uh, set up to allow no reason absentee voting. So, and that's been a, an issue that's been deba debated uh, legislative session after legislative session um, with no um, really movement from the uh, current law that says you got to attend to one of these or provide one of these six reasons to vote an absentee ballot in the state. Right. Yeah. And when I said white lie, I think there are an awful lot of people who ask for absentee ballots just you know, particularly before a, a heavy turnout election like a presidential or a gubernatorial election, just because they don't feel like standing in line and they just want the convenience of it. And so they say, I'm going to be out of town. And, uh, you know, and nobody, I mean, nobody's going to throw them in jail for that. But it's, uh, you know, this just allows people to, to not have to, like you said, not have to give a reason. Um, there's also a provision in here for same-day registration. Now we're getting into some areas that people really do have um, some serious issues with. Could you explain that? Right. There's a, a couple provisions in the proposal having to do with uh, registration deadlines. Um, currently, Michigan kind of closes the, the window, if you will, the registration window, 30 days before an election. So uh, if you aren't registered 30 days before an election, tough luck. Uh, this proposal would uh, basically expand the window by uh, bringing the uh, election de deadline uh, to 15 days before an election. So if you send in your materials uh, 
present them to the the local clerk 15 days before an election that you will get registered. Um, another provision in here says you can go in person and uh, register to vote with proof of residency. So you would need, you know, uh, proof that you are who you are and that you're a current resident at the, the location um, that you, you say you live. Um, and you can uh, register to vote um, inside that 15-day window, including up to election day. So basically moving to a same-day election day registration uh, system for Michigan. So you would have to go to the clerk's office, present this information, and you could receive a ballot, either an absentee ballot if it was before the election, uh, or if it's on election day, actually receive a ballot that day and vote. Okay. And then there's also the issue that we have been uh, recently fighting about in both Lansing and in the courts, uh, straight ticket voting. And, you know, this seems to be the one that really um, gets people exercised. Um, let's kind of outline the the debate over straight ticket voting in Michigan. Well, um Straight ticket voting has been a long-held tradition for uh, Michigan citizens. Uh, we looked uh, at the history, and it goes back to the presidency of Grover Cleveland. Uh, 1891 uh, was when the straight ticket option was made available to Michigan electors, and it has been consistently available for the last 127 years. Um, it's something that uh, provides an easy one check, one mark way of voting the partisan section of a ballot. Basically, you choose among the, the political parties uh, that are uh, fielding candidates uh, in every office, and you make one check and you've effectively voted for that party. Um, the arguments are that uh, the arguments against straight ticket voting break down as you know, we shouldn't be voting for parties. We should be voting for people, and it should be incumbent on voters to to educate themselves about, you know, the people they're electing, not necessarily the party. So there's been a a strong push to get rid of straight party voting in the name of uh, more informed voting in the state of Michigan. Um, Michigan uh, has held on to this tradition, uh, as I mentioned, for 127 years. A number of states that have had straight ticket voting have eliminated the practice, and now it's only like uh, 11 states uh, currently allow straight ticket voting, um, and, uh, and many many that used to have, have gotten rid of the practice. And there have been uh, three different attempts to revoke this privilege in the past, um, what it was 2000. Well, let's see, 2015, which is the one we've been fighting over. Uh, was it 2000 or 2001? Yep. 2001. And, and, and then 1964 is the other one. Okay. So, 1964. So, in, so three times the legislature has attempted to change this and it's always gone back because people seem to like it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, in 64 and 2001, uh, the legislature got enough votes and got the governor to sign a bill to get rid of the practice. And then the people said, hey, wait a minute, uh, we're going to subject the, the law to a referendum vote. And uh, they secured enough 
uh, votes at the at the ballot box to overturn the law and reverse the the legislative initiative. Um, in 2015, the legislature again had success, uh, garnered enough votes, got the governor to sign the bill. The 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 fatal uh, flaw, however, from a from a supporter of straight ticket voting perspective, was that the the law included an appropriation, and we know that if a uh, uh, if a piece of legislation, yeah, yeah, piece of legislation, state law includes an appropriation, it can't go to the voters uh, as a referendum, and uh, so the uh, the supporters of straight ticket par- uh, voting took the state to court and have been suing the state over the the elimination of straight party voting um, that's been winding through the federal courts and just uh, uh, last month in fact the federal court uh, court of appeals came down and said that the ban is legal uh, allowed it to go into effect and as a result we won't have that option uh, next uh, in November um, to vote a straight party uh, ballot. Okay. You know, um, in parts of the state, uh, particularly in Detroit, there are often long lines to vote, and I'm talking hours long. And many have argued that having a single party option is important to keep the lines moving, particularly because so ma- the ballot tends to be so long in Michigan. We, we put so many positions to um, a direct vote of the people. Um, so is it, can we get into the, some of the, the politics of this particular issue? Um, I think it's been shown by, uh, objective research in the past that straight ticket voting tends to help Democrats more than it does Republicans, although both parties, um, vo- voters in both parties use it. Um, is this, is this a tactic that, perhaps the Republicans are using to try to, you know, get a little more of an advantage? Well, before answering that question, I think you you touched on an important point, which is we have an extremely long ballot in Michigan, and not just on the partisan side, but even on the nonpartisan side. And then as we were talking about the ballot questions, we often have a number of ballot questions. So the ballot in Michigan is very long. And the trade-off for that long ballot, I I think, whether acknowledged explicitly or implicitly, is the option to vote a straight party ticket to speed up the time it takes to vote this long ballot in Michigan. So, you know, the 127-year tradition uh, in Michigan was kind of a counterweight, if you will, or a, to counterbalance the length of the ballot in Michigan. So that, I think that's an important context to have about the the, the option. Um, as to you know who uses it, you're right. Um, uh, where it's available, uh, Republicans and uh, Democrats use it, uh, um, but in in urban areas particularly. Um, it is a very popular device. Um, we looked at some data in the early 2000s, and Wayne County was uh, a, a heavy user of straight party voting option uh, compared to the rest of the state. I should point out that Michigan tends to use 
uh, straight party voting uh, more heavily than the national average. And the national average is quite high, in fact. Um, so it's a it's a very popular uh, device in Michigan and especially in, in urban areas of, of Michigan where it's used, uh, you know, because people are, uh, you know, have busy lives. They want to cast their ballot and move on and, and they don't want to wait in line for an hour or two hours um, to exercise this right. Okay. So who is supporting this particular initiative? Who's who organized it and who's behind it? So what we know is the the ballot committee, uh, Promote the Vote, has support uh, from a number of uh, groups. Uh, the American Civil Liberties Union is heavily supporting this effort uh, in Michigan. Um, the League of Women Voters is supporting this. We also uh, know that uh, the former state elections director, Chris Thomas, who served in that capacity for nearly four decades, um, administering uh, elections, uh, overseeing local elections and administering state elections is supportive of this. So um, it's got a, a pretty uh, diverse uh, background as far as support. Uh, we're, there's no organized opposition at this point that uh, we've been able to identify, at least in terms of a, uh, a ballot committee against this question. So, um, but we're still about two months out, so uh, time will tell whether or not an organized uh, opposition group forms on this one. Okay. And finally, we talked, Eric and I talked about this a little bit last week um, around the anti-gerrymandering uh, question. And, and that is that this, this and um, Proposal 2 and Proposal 3 both seem to be part of a movement that we can kind of loosely call um, political reform, which is, you know, a way to sort of update um, how we cast, how we vote in this country, um, who we vote for to, you know, to some extent. So things like uh, top two primaries, voting by mail, same day registration, you know, a lot of these things sort of fall under that umbrella of political reform. Um, I know in Washington, the state of Washington, um, they have adopted vote by mail, and I don't think they've had any particular problems uh, around it. I think uh, President, former President Obama is, is pushing um, or advocating for some reforms that would make it um, even easier and for, for people to vote. So do you think this, do you think this movement has any legs in Michigan? Oh, most definitely. I mean, this is this proposal's evidence of that. Um, you know, uh, a, a number of these uh, provisions in Proposal Three are designed to make it easier for people to vote, to open up the franchise. Um, you know, we it doesn't go as far as uh, vote by mail. Um, uh, in, in terms of, you know, the ease of voting, but uh, the same day voter registration uh, definitely opens up uh, voting access. Um, the security issues here are also worth noting. Um, the statewide election audit requirement, uh, this is on the heels of concerns about um, foreign meddling in our elections and safeguarding our elections. So, uh, there's an, a tip of the hat to, to that proposal here. Um, when we look at the registration deadlines, Michigan has 
you know, kind of allowed a the you know the the largest uh, shortest window, I should say, in terms of register having to be registered 30 days before the election. This narrows that to, to 15 days, acknowledging that you know communications move a lot faster now. Mail moves a lot faster. We can get these things done and get more people registered um, closer to the election without really sacrificing um, you know, a lot of work on the uh, local clerk's behalf or uh, those that are responsible for uh, administering elections. So yes, this is definitely a movement um, that we're seeing nationally to make voting easier, um, more accessible and safer. Yeah. So, okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, Craig. I do appreciate you being here. And uh, next week we will do the last of our three, and that will be on the pungent topic of legal recreational marijuana. So (laughs) thanks again for being here and uh, have a wonderful rest of the day. Don't forget to vote November 6th. Absolutely. And that will do it for this edition of Facts Matter, the Citizens Research Council of Michigan podcast. Remember, the council operates as a public resource, and all of our papers, along with blogs, op-eds, and other resources, are available for download on our website, crcmich.org. We operate as a nonprofit through the generosity of Michigan's corporations, foundations, and individuals like you. If you'd like to make a donation, go to our website, crcmich.org, and click on the contribution button on the homepage. We also welcome feedback, which you can send via email to crcmich at crcmich.org. I'm Nancy Derringer, and until next time, I leave you with this observation by our founding president, Lent Upson. The right to criticize government is also an obligation to know what you're talking about. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.